Welcome to Crossroads Church in Rowlett. We're so glad you're here. Join us here for our weekly sermons or visit crossroadsrowlett.org for more information. Good morning, church. Can you guess what this series is called? Top 10, yeah. Um, students on the front row, they're with it. Um, man, I'm so glad you're here this morning. Um, happy Memorial Day weekend. Hope you have a great time resting and remembering those who have sacrificed for our freedom. We're going to have a summer full of top tens, full of them. Um, most of them um, are fun, to be honest. So if you're on social media Friday, you saw this. We ranked the top 10 French fries, right? You saw this? Anybody see it? Anybody awake this morning? Anybody? Okay, there are people in the room. Great. So um, we ranked top 10 French fries. Um, our staff kind of got together and talked about that. And I'll just tell you, the list is wrong. It's wrong. Um, I had some influence on the list, not enough. Um, Snuffers cheese fries are the best fries that exist on the planet. Um, yep. And I, we actually have a guy in our church that works at Jake's Burgers um, who is here at the 9 o'clock service. He was not okay with me saying that. So Jake's Burgers, also very good, and their fries are good too. Um, so we're going to rank a bunch of fun things. It'll be um, an awesome time. You'll get to argue about that on social media. It'll be great. Um, Way more importantly, we have a couple of challenges we want to challenge our church to. When you walked in this morning, there was a, um, like a square paper on your chair. Um, I loved it. A couple of people were like, are all these seats reserved? Well, if they are, there are no seats. So, um, no, it's just for you. It's a gift for you because starting this week and for the next nine weeks, when you walk in, there will be a different scripture on your chair, and we are challenging our church to memorize 10 verses of scripture this summer. They'll also be on the app, so if you're out of town, you'll see them there, but we would love for you to hide God's word in your heart because that is what gives us the power to fight sin in our life. So also, and this is a big challenge, we want every person in our church this summer to share the gospel with 10 people. Go share the gospel with 10 people that do not know Jesus and invite them not to crossroads, but into a relationship with Jesus first. So that's what we want. And then on Sunday mornings, we are going to talk about, I bet you can guess this, the Ten Commandments which nothing says light, gentle sermon series like thou shalt not. Am I right? So when you come in, it will be, uh, it'll be challenging, and I hope today challenges you, but, and I hope the next nine weeks challenges you. I would just pray and ask you, when you are in town, when you are here, be here to experience the power of being together and the power of the Word of God. So this morning, I have an interesting challenge. I'm going to intro to you, hopefully, the whole series and why rules exist in the Bible and why the law exists and also unpack the first commandment. Now, the reason it's like that is because commandment one and two, while they can stand on their own, they are very connected. So next week will just be like part two of this message. So, but before we get there, the Ten Commandments happens, they are listed in Exodus chapter 20, which means I have to catch us up 19 chapters in Exodus in the next couple of minutes. So hold on um, to your hats. We're going to go. So second book of the Bible is Exodus. We see and meet the Israelite people. They have been in Egyptian slavery and Egyptian captivity for 430 years. And in Exodus chapter 2, Moses murders a guy. And in chapter 3, he's walking around and sees a plant on fire. And it starts to talk to him. And it's God. And God's like, I've got a plan for your life. I have a purpose for your life. And he tells him, you're going to go rescue my people out of Egypt. And he's like, no. 
And then he does it, and he walks into Egypt, and there's all these stories which you should read in Exodus chapter 1 through 19. But what happens is, is he walks in, and he meets this guy named Pharaoh who's ruling Egypt, and he keeps walking in, and Charlton Heston goes, let my people go. No, it's Moses, and he says, let my people go. Ten different times, which results in ten different plagues, which we'll talk about in a minute. It's the start of the Passover, and then the start of the Exodus, the grand exit. And they start to run out of Egypt, and God at night follows them as a pillar, leads them as a pillar of fire, and during the day, a cloud. And then they get to the Red Sea, and they think, oh no, we've died. And they get to the end of the Red Sea, and Moses shoves his staff in the water, and the water parts, and the Israelites walk across on dry ground, and the Egyptian armies are behind them, and God swallows them in the waves, and they're dead. The end, right? No. The Israelite people end up in the wilderness, complaining. They're really good at that. Chapter 16, 17, 18, they're complaining, and groaning but what's so interesting this was so comforting to me is even in their complaining god shows up like he rains down manna and quail from heaven he just like throws food from the sky and they complain about it which is so weird but they like he throws food from the sky and then he gets water out of a rock which i don't know if you realize that's miraculous there's plenty of rocks around here on this property i dare you after service to start throwing rocks on the ground and see if water comes out it doesn't happen but God provides water from a rock, and then in Exodus 19, Moses goes up a mountain to have a conversation with God. And it goes like this in verse 3. Moses went up the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant... You will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you were to say to the Israelites. So God's going to set up this conversation, set up the giving of the Ten Commandments this way. He's going to say, remember what I have done for you. Remember that I love you. Remember that I was the one that sent the plagues. Remember that I was the one that crossed you across the Red Sea on dry ground. Remember the one that I was the one that gave you water from a rock and I was the one that gave you manna from heaven. Do you remember that? And they're like, yeah. He says, so because of that, I need you to obey what I say. You see, he says, obey what I say and you will become a people of God's representatives on earth. That's literally what that kingdom of priests means. It means that the Israelite people, you will just be a representative of God for the rest of the world, and you will be a holy no nation set apart for a purpose. You get that language later in First Peter about us, about the Christian walk and Christian life, but it actually starts right here with the Israelite people on their way out of Egypt. See, what's happening here is what's called the Mosaic Covenant, and that is just Fancy word for a conversation between God and Moses that's a promise that is still true, um, that was true for those people. You see, it's a different type of covenant, though. It's a covenant where God is expecting obedience. He's going to go, if you will be obedient to my word, it comes with blessing. But if you are disobedient, it comes with discipline. And that is so significant, and I'll tell you why here in a little bit, because the law of God reveals something in us. Now, how many of you are rule followers? <laughs> it's funny, infinitely less in this service. Uh, 
because you don't follow the rule of your alarm, am I right? Um, no, just kidding. Um, that was just a joke. Um, I thought I was a rule follower my whole life until I was 25 years old and at Firewheel, a shop at Firewheel called Firewheel Coffee, I met a girl named Caitlin, and she is the ultimate rule follower. I know, because I'm married to her now. Um, in fact, this week we had a conversation about it, and we were talking about rules, and I said, babe, what is the dumbest rule you have ever followed? And just like a true rule follower, she said, there are no dumb rules. <laughs> but then I got to one. Um, she drove for the, when she was 16, she drove for the first six month, months without the radio on in her car because her dad said so. That's the dumbest rule you have ever followed, I promise. Because driving around in silence is miserable. I hate it. And like, you did that for six months because you were afraid your dad bugged the car. But he didn't. Um, we found that out this morning. You see, it's like this. We confuse the purpose of rules in our life, particularly rule followers. We go, there's a law, we have to, we have to um, live up to it. But if we're not careful, we won't just confuse the purpose of rules in our life. We'll do it in our faith. So I want to set this up, <coughs> sorry, a couple of different ways. First is what, is what rules are not in church and what your rules and your faith aren't. First, they are not a weapon. Now, I grew up in a church very different than this, very different than this, and they loved rules. Now, I will say there are several people that are still in my life that are God-loving, wonderful, amazing people who deeply love God and deeply love people, and I'm so grateful for that time because I came to know Jesus there as a kid. I surrendered to ministry. I got my passion for the word of God. I am grateful for my time growing up there. But I will tell you, they loved rules a lot. In fact, they loved them so much at one point that they told me to leave because I didn't follow them. So they loved rules. And can I tell you, I know this is true, that some of you are in the room today because at some point in your life, someone used the word of God to hurt you, wound you, abuse you, can I tell you, that was never God's purpose for it. It's not the purpose of the word of God. You see, some believers love rules oftentimes more than they love people. And I never want to be guilty of that. I love the law of God. I love the word of God. But I will not love rules more than I love people. See, rules are not a weapon to wound people with. And the extreme reaction to that would be, okay, perfect. No rules. Right? That's the response. If rules are bad, we just won't have any. And you know as well as I do, that is not a good plan, right? So what is the purpose? God is teaching me something. I hope, he's, I hope he teaches this to you is just because the rules of your faith may have hurt you doesn't mean they're bad. See, the rules are also not a comparison tool. You know, how do I know if I'm using the rules or using the commands of God as a comparison tool? Um, here's how. These are statements you might say, or maybe you've never said and I've just said them. Well, I've never done that. Can you believe they did that? Did you see that on Facebook? Or there's a special place in hell for those people. <laughs> right? You've heard that. Maybe you've said it. Can I tell you that that is an immediate red flag? That we're using the law of God and the rules of God as a comparison tool. And I have to be careful of this because I told you I was a rule follower. Growing up, I didn't drink, I didn't smoke, I didn't have sex before I was married. Like, I was a morally good kid. But weirdly, what changed in me is I went from morally good to I thought I was better than. 
And that's not, like, if we're not careful, when we use the law as a comparison tool, we actually become self-righteous. So I have to fight that in me. Because we often compare down. Right? When we're thinking about how we're doing, uh, like, how we're doing our Christian life, we're never, like, looking up going, oh, I sure wish I could be like them. We're like, man, I'm sure doing better than Caitlin. <laughs> not really. <laughs> Just to be clear. <clears throat> See, we're not trying to benchmark against other people's failure. See, if you're a believer in Christ, the only thing different about you, the, the goodness that's in you, it all came from Jesus. The only thing different about you from the lost world is that you have experienced Jesus before they have. That's what has made us good. So if they're not a weapon, they're not a comparison tool, then why in the world do they exist? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Um, number one, rules show our need for a savior. See, this is what I was talking about. This is the uniqueness of the Mosaic Covenant, this conversation between God and Moses. Because with Abraham, in Genesis chapter 16, God shows up on the scene and he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. The end. And it is an unconditional covenant from God. In Genesis 19, you get this incredible picture. It's this ceremony where God walks by himself. Normally, both people would walk through, both people in the covenant. But God walks by himself through these broken pieces of animals. And it's a declaration that if one of us breaks the covenant, I will rip myself in half for you to make sure that it is redeemed. And it's a foreshadowing to what happens on the cross. But that's not the covenant that happens here. It's conditional. God says, here's a law. Obey it. If you do, I'll bless you. And if you don't obey it, discipline and punishment will come. And the reason he sets that up, the reason he's going to give the law is to reveal something in us, to reveal that we desperately need a savior. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul is actually going to ask the same question. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sin, but the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. See, through this series, you will notice something that I have noticed about myself already. I have broken all Ten Commandments. You may learn that about yourself over the next ten weeks when you dive in and do a deep dive on the study of these commandments. And I don't know about you, but that can move me to a place of guilt, to a place of shame, and I believe that Jesus wants to move us to a different place this morning. I think that God wants to move us to a place of utter desperation, but not desperation without hope, it's desperation with hope. Because God already sent Jesus, he already died on the cross, and he rose from the dead so that we don't have to live in that guilt and shame. But the law exists to show our need for a Savior. <coughs> the other reason rules exist is this. Rules create practical boundaries for a fulfilled life. Now, don't mishear me. Not a good life and not a rich life. Like, there is not, I do not believe that it's possible for you to drive home and a, a paid-for Porsche to be in your driveway just because you came to church today. I just don't think that's possible. I also don't think it's possible for me to drive up to my apartment today and it has turned into a four-bedroom paid-for house. Like, it's not going to happen to me. I'd love for it to. It's not going to happen. But that doesn't mean my life isn't fulfilled. Fulfilled just means this. It means living out your purpose for the kingdom of God. You see, you're, if you're a believer in Christ, your best life is not now. Your best life is absolutely later which is great news because this is the worst it ever gets. See, God has set up rules in our life on this side of eternity to make sure we live a life that is fulfilling to the kingdom of God. 
perfect example of this is the book of Proverbs. It's a book full of wisdom, full of things, um, rules, restrictions, um, advice, thoughts about every area of life. How many of you have ever been tempted by more stuff? Anybody stuff people? I'm a stuff people. I love, love stuff. Um, you know what's great about our world, though? You can get more. All you have to do, drive here, go to the bank. Well, not today or tomorrow, but go to the bank Tuesday. Um, and just tell them. Just tell me you want more stuff, and it's really cool. They'll give you a card with free money on it, um, and you can just get whatever you want. That's how it works, right? Absolutely not. It's not how it works. You might think it works that way. 18-year-old me thought it worked that way. 30-year-old me can confirm doesn't work that way. But what's weird is the Bible talks about this in Proverbs. The borrower is a slave to the lender. Translation, debt's not fun. And the climb out of it is way worse. See, the rule creates a boundary for a more fulfilled life. God going, don't get in debt, is not mean, it's actually protective. You saying to your toddler, don't run in traffic, isn't mean, it's protecting. Rules create practical boundaries for a fulfilled life. I looked up the most common commands of Scripture this week. Shocked me. Number one, do not fear. Rejoice. Give thanks. Those are the top three commands in Scripture. You know what's wild? Gratitude, joy, and absence of fear, both spiritually and psychologically, lead you to fulfillment. It's wild, isn't it? God's giving us commands to set up practical boundaries for a fulfilled life. The last one is this. You will hear this a lot in this series. Rules enable relationship. Now, I told you I was married to Caitlin. We'll just use our marriage as an example. There are rules from Scripture that we follow to make sure that our marriage is in a healthy place and we're in relationship. Uh, for instance, don't sleep with other people. This is a rule that we follow in our marriage. If we don't follow it, there will be no relationship. And I'll be dead. <laughs> like, it will end badly for me. See, there are other rules that are a little more fun that aren't from scripture, but they're rules that dictate how our relationship goes. For instance, I know that I am not to start chores that I am not willing to finish. <laughs> For instance, all the women are laughing and all the men are like, don't start the laundry and not finish it. Don't start the dishes and not finish it. Don't clean one bathroom and not ours. Like don't, don't do half of the chores and then sit down and do whatever you want and expect me to finish it right like that's a rule so like if it happens in our house when I break that rule it disables the relationship usually in the form of silence or frustration or another rule also applies to me <laughs> don't pile your sho shoes up in the corner of the bedroom it's not hard I do it every day there are no rules for her. She's perfect. She's amazing. <laughs> see, uh, rules enable relationships. You see, God, God sets us up. He says there's rules where we can live at peace together and we can live at peace with God if we just follow them. And the reason he does that is because when we disobey, it creates separation. Just like in my marriage, when one of us is not following the rules that have set out, been set out in Scripture, the rules that we have set up in our relationship, when I break them, 
it causes separation. The same thing happens in your relationship with God. That God has set up rules to how we function with him, and when we break the rules, it breaks the relationship. Now, don't hear me. I'm not saying lose your salvation, but it creates a separation in the relationship. Now, this is where it's so cool because our God is gracious, and he says, come confess your sin and repent, and I will welcome you back in. But the point of rules is so that we don't get in a habit of separation. Because if we just keep breaking our relationship with God over and over, we will get nowhere. It just creates damage. See, rules enable relationships. And now that I've set up for you why rules are important, let's get to the text that we're talking about this morning. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 3. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. See, God is going to start in an interesting place with Moses. He just doesn't like start with the rules, right? It's not like verse one, do not have any other gods besides me. He sets this other thing up first. He's going to go, I've already demonstrated my power for you. <clears throat> and he's actually going to reference, he's going to say, I brought you out of Egypt and I brought you out of slavery. And he's referencing this moment of the plagues, right? So I don't know if you know this. I did a little nerdy deep dive on this. If you want more information, I can send it to you. I'm not going to bore everybody. Um, you see, the ten plagues are actually a response to the most common Egyptian gods. For instance, Heket is the frog goddess of birth. In Egypt, frogs were sacred. I don't know why. They're gross. They're weird. But Egypt, Egyptians thought frogs were sacred and they were not to be killed. So God shows his power, not by sending frogs, but at the end of the plague, killing the frogs. In a moment, he wipes out thousands of frogs, the things that they would have considered sacred. There are also symbolic defeats of the God of crops, the God of livestock, and the God of health. And they are, those gods are shown powerless in the presence of our God. But maybe the plague with the most powerful message is the ninth plague. You see... The Egyptians worshipped the sun god Ra. That's the god of the sun. And he was represented by a person on earth. And the person on earth that he was represented by was a guy named Pharaoh. And this whole thing with plagues is like this big conversation between God and Pharaoh. And God and the ninth plague goes, watch this. You know that little god that you think you represent? I'm going to throw darkness over the land of Egypt. And God shows up with his power and shows that he's the God over nature and he's the God over life. And Pharaoh still doesn't get it. And in the 10th plague, you have the death of the firstborn and Passover, which demonstrates God's power over life and death. See, what happens here is God is commanding the Israelites' allegiance in light of the great cost of what it took. He says to the Israelites, I brought 10 plagues of death to show you my power over life and death. Your deliverance cost the lives and the livelihoods of thousands of people. And I did that because I love you so much. And your only reasonable response to that information is that you would live your life for me. And church, I believe God is saying the same thing to us this morning. That I have delivered you from your sin. And while Romans will say that it is a free gift, it was not a cheap gift, it cost God his very son on the cross. 
And it cost him that because he loved you. And your only reasonable response, and my only reasonable response to that information, is that we would live our life for him. And that is the first commandment. Do not have any other gods besides me. One allegiance, one faith, one commitment to God for a lifetime. That is what he is commanding. You see, it's the Ten Commandments. It's not the Ten Suggestions, the Ten Proposals, the Ten Recommendations, the Ten Hopes. It's the Ten Commandments. Because God knows we will be tempted to serve other gods. This is the first command. He's going to go, you've got to get this right. You have to get this one right. Because there is unmatched power in obedience to the first commandment. You cannot live out the last nine commandments if you can't obey the first commandment. If you just try to live out the last nine without the first one, it's just legalism. But a commitment and a faith and an allegiance to God is the first commandment. So I just want to ask a brief question. What are the things that get in our way of allegiance? First one may sound weird. Amazement. Amazement just means you're greatly surprised and we live in an easily amazed culture can i tell like i am amazed by steph curry's basketball ability it's amazing also um this is just a side note if anybody watched the eastern conference finals last night i was amazed last night like three seconds left missed shot and then this guy with tenths of a second left Derek white just puts the ball in forces game seven and i'm like yes i am busy monday night like i am ready to watch game seven i was amazed by that and i know some of you were because you texted me when it happened because you knew I was watching it. <laughs> I'm also amazed by Netflix documentaries. Like the moment I'm done preaching, if you just want to come talk to me, I will tell you all about the last six that I've watched because I just love documentaries, love information. Um, I'm amazed by things like Niagara Falls. Like we went there on our honeymoon. It's just an amazing picture of the power of God. And in a different way, I'm amazed by the next generation's style choices. All of our interns are shaking their head at me, but it's true, y'all. Um, and this week I found out for hours that I'm amazed by French fries. Like, I, we talked about it forever. This week we talked about the top ten French fries. You see, we're easily amazed by things that don't matter. And I believe that it causes us to miss the things that do matter. Because we're amazed by so many things that we would never dare put our faith in. And God is not looking for you to just be amazed. You see, amazement is a great start, but if it doesn't move us to allegiance, it's actually an obstacle. Last week, last Sunday, about this time actually, um, was one of the coolest, I'll just say, it was the coolest, most powerful moment of my spiritual life I've ever had. I watched 31 people give up, give their life to Jesus kind of spontaneously, and we baptized them. It was an incredible moment. I believe we saw the Spirit of God move. We talked about it as a, as a staff this week, like those are the moments that you hold on to in the, in the weary times, and you go, I watched God move that day. Like, it was awesome. I actually see people in the room. You gave your life to Jesus last week. Like, it's incredible. It was awesome. <laughs> see, but here's the thing. I believe there were other people in the room, and there were other people in the room that are still lost, or you're still not living your life for God, and last week blew you away. You were like, that was amazing. And then you just went back to work on Monday. And it did nothing. But it was awesome. 
Church, we cannot get too blown away by what God is doing around us that we forget that he's trying to work in us. See, I believe there are people who have sat in church for decades amazed by what God can do for other people, but are never willing to embrace what God can do for them. We don't want to stay in amazement. We want to move to allegiance. The other obstacle (coughs) that I see is apathy. Apathy just means um, you don't care or a lack of interest, enthusiasm, or concern. So here's some signs you may be living in apathy. Is there unconfessed sin in your life? See, in Psalms, David will say that it is is silence, in his silence, his strength faded. His strength went away in his silence. When he cut off his conversation with God, he lost his enthusiasm, he lost his concern, he lost his interest. And maybe we're apathetic because we've gotten too comfortable in our sin. Or maybe you've grown numb to the gospel story. When I reference the cross and resurrection, it just... Your eyes just kind of glaze over. Can I tell you, church, we never mature past the gospel. We mature in the gospel. We will never mature past the gospel. Another way to check is what fills your thoughts. Paul says, fix your mind on things that are above. So how often do you think about your eternal impact? If it's not often, it might be an indication that you don't care anymore. But I believe the biggest obstacle for our allegiance is not amazement or apathy, it is options. You see, the top 10 series is actually a great example of this. I've been joking about french fries, but um, Friday, no pun intended, um, Friday, you guys played into this on social media perfectly. We posted 10 options for french fries, a place that you could go to For a nominal fee, they will cook your food and put fries in front of you. And many of our responses, including myself, was, why wasn't this place on the list? (laughs) And those of you who think Brahms should be on the list are just wrong. but, (laughs) But it's this, we live in this culture of options where if I don't like the first 10, I'll just go to the next 10. And I think the, the problem is when our faith, we're starting to try to embrace that too. Like that I can have God and something else. But you see, we're designed for singular allegiance. Matthew chapter 6, it'll say, No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. God has created us in his image to serve him. Too many of us have God in one hand and something else in the other hand. We're like, All right, I'll serve God and money. I'll serve God and my kids. I'll serve God and my career. I'll serve God and my sports. I'll serve God and something. And we just grab both the things and we put them like in this holy hug and we're like, yes! Church holy hug, not an option. It is God or something else. It is never God and something else. Like we either serve God or we serve something else. In James chapter 1, it says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You see, when we try to live in allegiance to two things, it messes us up. That's what James 1.8 is saying. Is that if I try to live for God and I live for my career, that it's going to affect my marriage, it's going to affect my family, it's going to affect my job, my thoughts, my attitudes, it's going to affect everything about me. (coughs) So what the first commandment means is this. We must put to death the other gods in our life. Now, that's what a lot of next week is about, so I'm not going to dive in here, but I would just 
challenge you to start to think, what are the things that are getting in the way of my relationship with God? What have I created, what have I built in my life that is more important than God, and how in the world am I going to tear it down? What I mean by that are what are the things that take your focus, attention away from your relationship with God? So if those are the obstacles, how in the world do we live out obedience, or out allegiance? I believe that who you live for will determine how you live. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's actually a beautiful picture of this. If you've been in church a while, you know this verse. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. See, Jesus later in the New Testament is actually going to quote this. He's going to say the whole law, all ten commandments, all 617 Levitical laws are summed up in this one command, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. So what I want to end with this morning is this. I just want to do, me and you, I'm going to do this with you, just a personal inventory of how we're doing with loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. First one, love God with all your heart. Just means to love God with how you feel, your desire, your emotions, your passions, and your moral character. I believe when we love God with all of our heart, this is how we move from amazement to allegiance. So what are the desires of your heart right now? Just think about that question. What are the desires of your heart right now? Are they God-honoring? Are they kingdom-minded? This one's hard for me. Are your emotional responses loving God? Or are they self-centered? And if we replayed the moral decisions of your life, even in the last week, did they honor God? See, church, what we do matters and what we want matters and how we respond matters you see emotions are indicator lights of our heart and too many of us treat our emotions like i treat the indicator lights on my dashboard what i mean is we have two cars and currently we have three lights (laughs) and they have been there for a long time and in the first service my father-in-law was shooting daggers through my soul as i was talking about this um But I treat the lights on the dashboard as decoration. (laughs) Like, oh, it's pretty today. (laughs) Wonder what that means. Some of you are like, I've got to go look at your car after service. (laughs) It's fine. It's just tires and windshield wiper fluid. Um, Here's the thing. Too many of us treat our emotions that way. See, emotions are in us. They are indicators to move us somewhere. And they should move us to God. When we are emotional, it should actually move us deeper into a relationship with God. But most of us, if we're being honest, we're not intentional about how we treat our emotions, so they just, our emotions just move us to, ah, right? But if we'd actually think about it, love God with all your heart, your emotions actually might move you somewhere beneficial. They can move you closer to God. You see, what we do, what we desire And where our emotions take us is a reflection of who we love the most. But he doesn't stop there. If that's not challenging enough for you, um, he says, love God with all your heart, then love God with all your soul or mind. Really, this summed up here is going to be your thoughts and intelligence, and then your schedule. Those are going to be what those words mean. So how were your thoughts this week? 
How many of them were self-centered? How many of them were God-focused? How much of your schedule was dedicated to kingdom work? Don't mishear me. I didn't ask how much of your schedule was dedicated to church activity. How much of your schedule was dedicated to kingdom work? How much did you share the gospel? I'm not saying church activities are bad. I'm just saying they can sometimes get in the way of actual kingdom work. See, God says love God with your mind. God didn't call us to be blind faith dummies. This is something I really struggled with in school because I love to learn. I love to study. And I felt like sometimes I was like, why can't I use, like this should, I'm learning stuff in English. I should be able to use it with my Bible. Yeah, you should. You absolutely should. Love God with your mind. You see, God created us intelligent and people that can think critically. Do that in your relationship with God. See, if we used as much effort reading our Bible as we have writing research papers or studying sports stats, our relationships with God would be way different. So how you think matters. Your schedule matters. And then the last one is this, love God with all your strength. And if I'm being honest, when I studied, this is the weirdest one for me. I was like, what in the world does this mean? Like, just be strong? Like, I need to go to the gym? Yes, but no, that's not what this means. Love God with all your might, your intensity, and your fight. And that's the word I love. Love God with your fight. And I believe this is how we push back apathy when we love God with our strength. Now, I'm about to share a story, and I'd like to be clear. This is not my current experience at the place I work. This was my experience the first week that I worked here. So... I showed up on staff um, about seven and a half years ago, and on staff just meant that I was going to hang out with Jason, because we were the only staff, um, and Annette, Annette was there, so it was me, Annette, and Jason, so we, um, I showed up for my first day of work, I'd never had a job in the church world, had no idea what to expect, and I was terrified, <laughs> and I walked into, if you've been in the other building, I walked into the kitchen office thing, and there was like a folding table and a folding chair, and that was my desk, and I sat there, and for the first week, I shook and sweated in terror for five days, <laughs> terrified of my boss. I'm not terrified of him anymore. But here's why. It's because sometimes intense people intimidate me. I'm just like, I'm just not, I'm just not that intense. And if you've met Jason, he's amazing. He's one of my best friends. Um, he can be intense. And especially if you've never been in a church environment, it's real intense. And his intensity to me then was like, hey, Wes, how was your day? And I was like, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> what do you want from me? Uh, I've since learned. We, uh, it's very different now. Uh, intense people don't intimidate me anymore. They actually inspire me. See, when I pe- see people that want to reach, I was talking to Dave Ruff after the service. He's like, I need to, I need to talk to you about this message, and how do I get it? to the dirt bike track to talk to my racing friends. And I'm like, what? And he's like fired up. And I'm like, that's so cool. And then I see other people that are like, we've got to reach these foster and adoptive families. And we've got to reach these people that are struggling with this. We've got to reach lost teenagers. And we've got to go do this. And I've got to talk to my coworker about this. That inspires me. Because those are people that love God with their fight. That they're going to go, I'm going to go fight for my faith. So the questions to ask here are, how much fight did you have this week for you? For your faith. Some of you displayed incredible fight last Sunday. You went, I'm gonna, I am getting in the water. Like I am starting my relationship with God. How much fight did you have for your family's faith this week? 
How much focused time did you spend thinking about the mission that God has for you and the mission God has for your marriage? Can you imagine being in a war and you're with a soldier that has no fight and how frustrating that would be? Like you're in a war and you walk up and you talk to this guy and you're like, dude, did you bring your weapon? No. I think it's in the bottom drawer of my nightstand. And then you're like, okay, well, that's weird. Whatever. Have you talked to your commander lately? No. I talk to him like every other dinner and sometimes on Sunday. And you were in a war with them. Would you have some red flags? Would you be concerned? I think many of us do this with our faith. I don't know if you've noticed this. We're in a war. Our culture is a disaster. And God has sent me and you into our culture as people with the good news of the gospel to share it. And we need to go in with our weapon, the word of God, and go spend time with our commander in prayer and go walk into the world and start fighting. Now, some of you, you truth people are like, yes, we do. <laughs> I'd like to say it this way. We need to go fight, love God with our strength, armed with the word of God in one hand and the grace of God in the other hand and go reach people that are far from God and get them into the kingdom of God. That's why we're here. Love God with our fight. There should be an intensity to our walk with Jesus. Like if you see me, now I'm not an intense guy all the time, but if there's a long period of time where you don't see that I'm fired up to go reach students or go do discipleship groups or put people in connect groups, I want you to come tell me because I want to make sure that I'm loving God with all my strength. See, if we aren't loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we are loving something with it. See, maybe if you, if you were going, well, I don't know, like, I'm, maybe I'm not doing this with my heart or I'm not loving God with my mind, I'm not loving God with my strength. So I would just simply ask you, then what are you loving? You see, because we all are loving something, something is ruling our life, and the first commandment says, do not have other gods besides me. See, the Bible says that today is the day for salvation. So for many, for some of you in this room, you've never given your life to Jesus. And you could live out this first commandment today. In your chair, there's a piece of paper with instructions on it. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. That word Lord, it just means ruler, it means master, it means decision maker, it means God, whatever you say, that's what goes and I want to live my life for you. And you can begin to live out the first commandment for the first time today. Our prayer team, when the songs start, will be in the corners. Go talk to them, they would love to talk to you about it. For many of you in this room, you are a believer. Maybe God landed in your heart and in your life today and he's challenging you with how to love him or maybe some of those obstacles. I would challenge you, have conversations with me, have conversations with our staff, with the prayer team. We would love to help you because obedience to this commandment, I told you this earlier, it has unmatched power. See, when we obey the first commandment, it unlocks actual obedience to the next nine. So I would challenge you, church, this morning, even in worship that we're about to have, could we declare our soul allegiance to God? Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for how much you love us. God, I pray 
that we would live a life where we love you the most. God, that we love you with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. God, could we not be tempted to be apathetic or simply amazed? Or God, could we not be tempted by options, but God, could we honor you with our life, loving you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? God, we worship you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.